So it's great to have you all with us here on this Palm Sunday as we start into this thing, this journey that is Holy Week that starts today and it's gonna take us through the week, including the services that we're gonna have here on Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, obviously Easter Sunday. I just wanna say from the beginning, I've talked to some of you who are visitors with us this morning and I, I don't know where you're coming from this morning, but as you gather, and I mean that in terms of church background, Not everyone comes from a background or a church background that acknowledges Holy Week. This might be something that's new for you, whether it's because you're not from a liturgical background. You might be visiting us this morning and you're not a Christian. We just want you to know we're grateful that you're here this morning or we're thankful that you're watching online. And we believe that to the degree that you're able to be involved with our services that are taking place this week you're gonna be in for a very powerful one. This is the most consequential week of all time that we remember this Holy Week. I wanna to add to that, that one of the interesting things about Holy Week is the way that the different parts of it point us to the different things that we believe as Christians and the reasons that we believe those things. So just for example, Good Friday, as we remember Jesus's crucifixion, we remember... This man in history, Jesus of Nazareth, was not just a a mythical figure. He wasn't like Robin Hood. He wasn't like the Loch Ness Monster or anyone else that might have just been made up. This was a real person that really lived. When I was living in Oxford, England about 10 years ago, I remember there was no professor of history at Oxford that would have denied that a man, Jesus of Nazareth, lived and died, was crucified under Roman occupation. Everyone agreed on that. What they simply didn't agree on was whether or not he really was the man that he claimed to be, which was obviously the son of God dying for the sins of the world. We remember his death on Good Friday. Obviously, we get to Easter and we remember that claim, the Bible says, that is at the very center of what we believe as followers of Jesus. And that is the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ himself, not just a metaphor, not just an inspirational idea, but something that really happened. And and we know, again, as we read the scriptures carefully, it says, if, if the resurrection's out of the picture, Christianity disintegrates. It all just falls apart. So Good Friday, Easter, and then you come to Palm Sunday. And, and what we're reminded of on Palm Sunday is two of the arguably most important traits about Jesus that anyone could know and that when we look at them, they always make us pause. We feel the weight of both these today, one being his majesty and two, his humility. So remember, on a service like today, we, we have two gospel readings. Remember that, we, we started out with that passage from Luke 19 and then we had another one just minutes later, and obviously the first one being the triumphal entry. Okay, we're, we're remembering as the service begins this, in this liturgy of the palm, Jesus entering in Jerusalem. And later we have a passion a reading or a portion of the passion, passion reading historically. Each of those, again, is telling us something about this person, Jesus of Nazareth, that we have to know. So obviously with the triumphal entry, we have his majesty, his kingship. And we remember Jesus was not just coming as the king of Israel. He was coming as the king of the world, of the universe. 
So we have that with the triumphal entry. And then, when, of course, when we get to the passion, his humility, the, the, the fact that he allowed himself to be dishonored and disgraced and to die the death of a criminal in order to redeem his people. This is one of the things we know that makes Jesus different from every other leader in history. On one hand, the gospels say that he is the sovereign. And at the same time, they say that he is a servant. And both these things paradoxically are present together in the person of Jesus, both of them. And what that does, when we look at those carefully, is it, it leaves us having to think about two things. One, it gives Christianity credibility. It, it shows us another reason why we believe the things that we believe about Jesus. We're gonna look at that in just a couple minutes. Okay, and then secondly, it, in acknowledging those two attributes of Jesus, what that really does is protect us from two common ways for those of us who are Christians might frequently respond to the gospel and, and really um, being a disciple of Jesus Christ. So what we're going to do then is we're going to look at those now. We're going to go to these passages, see what is God wanting us to know about these two traits and how is it that they really shape us in terms of what we believe and how we live. And so let's look at them now. First, we're going to think about Jesus's majesty. Again, you would have that passage open for you. We're going to be looking at it in just a moment. If we were to do a poll, not just in Birmingham, obviously we're in the Bible Belt here, but across the country. And if we were to ask people, what are the defining things that you know about the person of Jesus Christ? What do you think that they would mention? What do we think that they would bring up? No matter what they believe, it's probable that they would say, well, maybe he was the greatest example of human love that ever lived. Okay, he was an advocate for the poor. He was a healer. And all those things are true. But one of the things the Bible says is that as gracious as he was and as gentle as he was, we cannot overlook the fact that he was known to be the king, to be a king. That's why we started the service the way we did with those words, Hosanna to the son of David, the king of Israel. Because there, if there is any passage in the accounts of Jesus's life that remind us about his kingship. It's this account of the triumphal entry. And when we look at that carefully, which is what we're gonna do now, we see all the signs in passages like this of royalty. Royalty. And, and specifically here, we're gonna have a, it's gonna be a little much on the alliteration today. I'm sorry about that. But, but four specific ways in words that start with C, we see his royalty with the cult, the cloaks, the cut branches and the crowds. His royalty is seen in all four of them. So first, let's think about the cult. Okay, one, of the, one of the main ways that we are to clue in on Jesus's kingship is through the role of the cult in this account. Look with me at the passage, if you have it in front of you. He and the disciples are near Jerusalem. They're about to enter it. Then what he does is he sends two of them in the, he sends two of them to get the colt. Verse 30, go into the village in front of you, where on entering, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. So verse 35 says they go, they get it, they throw their cloaks on it, and then Jesus gets on that, and, and, and Jesus 
rides in and amongst the people as he enters into Jerusalem. Now, in our culture, we don't necessarily think of a cult and a king, you know, a, a grand king. When, when we think of, of a leader and someone with power and authority, I, th- I think we think of something maybe bigger. I was, I th- even though he wasn't a king, I, I think of uh, that character Mel Gibson plays, William Wallace and Braveheart. You know, or, or maybe when I was growing up, I lived in Virginia by Bush Gardens and they had the Budweiser Clydesdales in the stalls and you could go see them. I remember being this tall and looking, I could have walked under them. I remember looking up at them and thinking they were so big. And even as I got older, other things got smaller like the teacups and the roller coasters. The Clydesdales were still huge. They're big animals. That's the kind of thing that we would expect a king to ride in on. So why, why a cult? Now, this isn't as ex, ex, uh, explicit in the Lucan account, but you go to Matthew, Matthew 21, 5, and, and it explains the significance. And here's what it says about Jesus riding the cult. It says, this took place, verse 5, to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. That's why this was happening. And, and what was spoken by the prophet? Why, why was this going on? And this is from our reading earlier in Zechariah, Zechariah 9, 9. The prophet Zechariah saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a beast of burden. So when Jesus looks at those two disciples and says to them, look, I want you to go. There's going to be a colt. I want you to untie it. I want you to bring it here. They were supposed to know what was going on. He says, hey, you know, you know that one Zechariah was pointing to that's coming? Okay. That's me. So go get it. Let's move. Let's go. They should know what's going on. So we see it with the cult. We see his kingship with the cloaks. Notice what everybody does in this passage with the cloaks. The disciples obviously put them on the cult as Jesus gets onto it. And then verse 36, and as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. This is obviously a sign of respect. They wouldn't do this just for anybody. They would do it for royalty. Another symbol, the cut branches. Um, Again, if if you haven't celebrated Holy Week before, maybe you've never even been to a service um, where we do this thing with the palms. You might be wondering, like, why do we do that? do Do we give them to the palms so that the kids have something to entertain them during the service? You know, or so that we've got a really tactile kind of object lesson that gives us an opportunity to, to disciple our kids. Well, both those things are actually pretty good things, but that's, that's not the reason that this is going on. Okay, what are we doing? We're reenacting this scene, aren't we, together? And we know the palms played a role. We, we don't read about them in Luke's account. Again, we read about them in both Matthew and Mark. And Mark it describes the people as grabbing leafy branches. In Matthew, it, it uses the phrase cut branches. So Matthew 21, 8, as Jesus is, is riding in, it says they laid down their cloaks, quote, others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And why did they do that? Many of you know these, these branches, most likely palm branches, they were symbols of victory of triumph. So when, when Jesus is riding by, they've not only laid down their cloaks, they're waving their branches like this. You can imagine 
in a day in which maybe it was far less polarizing and everyone supported the president. You can imagine a, a, a dignitary or someone else coming by and people waving flags in support. That's the kind of feeling that's going on here. Not a perfect analogy, but it's close. And then finally, notice the crowds. Jesus comes to Jerusalem and what happens to him? He is mobbed. He's mobbed by people. Verse 37. The whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice. So there are the crowds. And what are the crowds doing? The crowds are crying out to him. They're shouting, 38, verse 38. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Another reference from the Old Testament, Psalm 118, verse 26. Jesus is coming and as this figure, he is the one all that the prophets and others have been pointing to. So notice, everything in this first passage that we read screams royalty. Okay, the, the, the king on the cult predicted by one of their prophets, the, the paying of homage by laying down their garments, the, the waving of the branches. And then finally, the, the people doing something that doesn't happen to me when I walk around Crestline or over in Homewood, or maybe you, people shouting out at the top of their lungs, here's the king. It screams royalty. There was something that happened a little bit similar Again, when I was living in England uh, about 10 years ago, I was living in Oxford and uh, Queen Elizabeth came to the city or the, the town. And uh, she was celebrating her 60th anniversary of her reign, her diamond jubilee. And so she was coming and, and it was an arrival fit for a queen. She, she came, how was she arriving? She wasn't on a Colt or a Clydesdale. She was in a Rolls Royce. There's the rolls. It was coming down. Thousands of people, it felt like, had shown up to see her, just to catch a glimpse of her. What were they doing? Waving the flags, the Union Jack flags, and, and, and shouting at her, just trying to make eye contact with her, cheering for her. And that gives us just the, the, the smallest sense of what was going on in this experience with Jesus. Now, I remember those things pretty well. You know what I don't remember? I don't remember in those moments, anyone in the crowd looking at somebody next to them and saying, why are we doing this? This is, this is really weird that we're shouting at the top of our lungs and, and practically fainting and passing out, getting a, a glimpse of the shorter, older woman. Why are we doing this? Nobody did that. Why? Because it was totally appropriate to spot, respond to this woman who was the queen. And in this case, it's totally appropriate for these people to respond in this way, again, because he's their king, not just the king of Israel, but the king of the whole world. Paul says in Colossians 1.16, for by him, this is again Jesus, obviously, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So, the Bible says, if you want to know who Jesus is, he's not just an inspiring leader in history. He's not just a, a moral teacher. He is the king of kings. We have to recognize his majesty. And at the same time, as we said earlier, as, as paradoxical 
paradoxical as it can feel, there is another part of Jesus that is equally important to who he was, including in history. And that's not just his majesty, but his humility. So if, if again, the, the first passage that we read from, this triumphal entry is emphasizing Jesus as the sovereign. This one that we read later from the passion is reminding us as him as the servant. And how are we reminded of that? What are the signs of his humility in this passage? Three more words that start with C. As we look at the cross, the criminals, and the curses. All three of those. First, the, if, if you're at all familiar with what's called the passion, you know everything about this scene. Everything you hear, everything that we imagine was taking place as it's been documented, everything is about humiliation. It's about shame. Starting with the cross, most importantly, with the cross. In Luke 23, the crowds have just asked for Jesus to be crucified. By the way, I should have mentioned, this is on page 884, if you're following along. Why don't you turn to that if you have that Bible in front of you. This is Luke 23. They've just asked for Jesus to be crucified. Pontius Pilate gives in. He gives them what they want. At first, it says in 26 that they asked Simon of Cyrene to carry Jesus' cross for him. We would imagine it's very possible that's because Jesus was so beaten and he was so bloodied, he couldn't do it on his own. So he's on a death march, essentially, with someone else carrying the cross with him. And then finally, verse 33. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. Now, we've said this before today, we see the cross as something beautiful. We, we, we put it on walls. We put it on the top of churches. We wear it around our, our necks, maybe on a necklace. And those things are good. That's totally appropriate because the, the cross to us is a symbol of, of glory and victory. Gotta remember that was nobody related to the cross that way. In Jesus's day. To wear a cross around your neck back then would have been like wearing an electric chair around your neck today. Nobody would have done it because the cross was a symbol of shame, of torture, and of death. But here's Jesus. Okay, again, he is the king of king. He's got all the authority in the world. And he, he could stop this moment from the cross having any, from happening any second. Okay, he, he looks at Pontius Pilate and says, don't you get it? If I wanted to, I, I could call down thousands of angels upon us in this very moment and they would stop everything from happening. He doesn't do it. And instead, he allows himself through the cross and dying on the cross to be humiliated and shamed in the most disgraceful way possible in their day. So we see his humiliation on the cross. We see it with the criminals and his being crucified between two of them. Look at verse 33, if you have it in front of you. There they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. I think if we're honest, most of us would be embarrassed to be put in a jail cell with other people, even if it was just for an hour. 
Can you imagine what it would be like to be crucified, to be executed along with two criminals? It would have been a a moment of utter shame for anyone that was living in their time. And then finally, the curses. Look at the way they mock Jesus. Look at the way he's mocked as the true king. 35 says the rulers scoff at him, telling him to save himself. The soldiers do the same thing. Verse 36, it says they mock him and tell him if he really is king, he can save himself. Even one of the criminals that's next to him does the same thing. Verse 39, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Now it's possible if you're reading that for the first time, you might look at it and think, well, you know, maybe this person that's next to him was, it was really a plea for mercy and for help. Like, can that really be all that bad? Isn't that person there saying, please, Jesus, can, can you help us? Here's the problem with that. When you look at, the, at what he's saying here, it says again, he railed at him. Now, if you look at that in the Greek, that word railed, do you know what word comes from that? I'm not gonna try to pronounce it because my Greek's terrible, but it's the same word that gives us the word blaspheme. It literally means to verbally abuse, to slander. So when he looks at him and he asks him if he can save them, he's deriding him. He is mocking him. Which if you think about it, that's really humiliation on two levels. Because on one hand, it's, it's being humiliated in the same way that everybody else is by scoffing at him. But then he's being shamed by someone that had more shame in their culture than anyone else, which is a criminal. He takes it all on. So again, we have a scene here that feels completely incongruent with the person that is the center of it, this picture of a king. And why is it? Because when we think about a king, don't we think of honor, of dignity? What's going on here? You look at what's going on with Jesus, how he dies, the people that he dies with, the things that they are saying about him as he dies. It is all dishonor. It's indignity. It's disgrace. And that would make us wonder, if Jesus had any clue about how bad things were going to be, and he did, we know that he did as we read the, as we read the Gospels, why did he do it? How, how is it that somebody with that much power could allow himself to go through something that, again, he could have stopped in an instant and yet chose not to? And the answer is in that passage, it's one more important word that starts with C, and that's the curtain. Did you see that? So in his last moments, as Jesus is there, there's darkness spreading over the land. It says in the second half of verse 45, very short sentence, should not be overlooked. And the curtain was torn in two. Now, what's Luke talking about? Many of you know what he's talking about. You may remember that in the temple during their time, there was a curtain between the most holy, sorry, the holy place and the most holy place, and what was that? That was this very, very tall fabric that was, as we understand, about 60 feet tall and 30 feet wide, and it was a physical symbol, a physical reminder of the spiritual reality 
that God was holy and they were not. If you were an Israelite, you went into the temple to worship and you knew you could not enter into the presence of God. And every time you looked at that fabric, you were reminded of who you really were. In fact, there was only one person, as many of you know, that could go in to the most holy place. Now it's just one day a year, that was the high priest and he could go in there on the day of atonement. But here we are in this passage and we're reading about that curtain at this moment being torn in two. And why is it? Because as Jesus is allowing himself to be crucified, he's giving his life as a final atonement. He's taking on the sins of all who believe and and that barrier between God and, and those who call on him, it's being removed, it's being taken away forever. And that, that's the reason why it's torn in this final moment as he gives himself as a final sacrifice. I wanna add, if you're visiting with us this morning, if you haven't put your faith in Jesus Christ, as hard as it is to say, that curtain's still there. When you, when you go to pray, um, you don't have access to him in the way that those who have trusted in him. Why? Not because of anything about them or about us who have put our faith in him, simply because, and I think special about us, but because we haven't fully surrendered to Jesus Christ. But for the moment that anyone does, okay, that barrier, that divider between us and God, it's gone. Just like it was gone on this day. And that's the reason why Paul can say what he says in that, our reading from Philippians 2, that Jesus did what he did. So on one hand, here's this figure. He has all the majesty about him, Paul says. He he says it in verse six. He was in the form of God. So he was in the form of God. He's as kingly as any any of us could ever imagine. And what did he do? Verse eight, he says, he humbled himself. And how? By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's the reason that Jesus went through it. went through with it because even though he was king and even though he knew he had every excuse to not go through with it, he knew that his own humiliation meant his people's liberation, liberation from their sins, freedom from that, freedom to live with God forever. That's why I did it. So majesty, humility, all in one person, mysteriously, all in the same person. So just two final thoughts then as as we finish up. We started out this morning saying that one of the things going on here is that this is giving us uh, a reminder of why Christians can believe what we believe and the things that we believe themselves. And again, what's going on here with Palm Sunday? Well, one of the things uh, that we're reminded is why could we believe in something like this? Because frankly, who, who makes up something like this? We, we, when it comes to honor, I mean, think about this. When it comes to honor and when it comes to dignity, everybody knows that those things are things worth being defended, aren't they? That is the way that all of us naturally process that. Think just for a second, especially for those of you who are, who are younger, think about the Oscars a couple of weeks ago and, and what happened with Will Smith. Okay, what happened? Some of you may know. He, he heard something being said that he felt was... Uh, making his wife feel ashamed. And what did he do? He, he walked up and he slapped the gentleman that said it on live TV. Now, I'm not looking to get into a debate as to whether or not that was the right thing to do. All I'm saying is we know why he did that, don't we? Because honor 
is to be defended at all costs. In fact, that's the reason why when our Muslim friends look at Christianity, they, they can't believe that Jesus could be the son of God because they believe in the glory of God. They believe in a God who is holy. They cannot accept the fact that, that God would allow himself or his son to be shamed and to be humiliated in the way that he is. That would be unimaginable. So uh, that's, at least for me, one reason that you look at this and think, this has got to be true because who would make something like this up? None of us would do that. So it gives us a reason to believe. It also helps protect us from two things as we think about these two traits. One is it protects us from Christian compromise. It also protects us from Christian condescension. Just to think about those for a second. One for Christian compromise, and this is really thinking about his majesty. When we think about the lordship of Jesus and the kingship of Jesus, one of the things that does is protect us from any inclination we might have within ourselves to downplay or soft pedal the exclusivity of Jesus. You ever had that temptation? You're talking to someone and, and you, you're in a situation where someone's asking for your opinion, either about your faith or the trustworthiness or goodness of the Bible or Jesus Christ himself, and you don't speak up. And, and it could be because of one of two reasons. One, maybe you don't want to speak up because you're afraid if you say what you say, which sounds exclusive, then they're going to perceive that you think that you are better than them, that you have some higher claim on the truth and you don't want to offend them. That might be one way that we compromise. Or maybe another reason is we frankly just want to be liked. We don't want to lose a business deal or we don't want to be uninvited to certain circles or, or parties that we're a part of. We can be tempted to do those things. Now, here's, here's the problem with that. If you've ever experienced that, I know I have experienced that. When we do that, we forget at times that if, if Jesus really is who the Bible claims that he is, if he really is the king of kings, then we shouldn't be worried about offending people in the, in the same way. And we shouldn't worry about being liked because they need him. He's a good king. They should surrender their lives to him because he's a king like none of us knows, which is he takes power. He takes authority. He doesn't use it to lord over his people or to exploit them. He uses his power to serve. And so one of the best things that when we look at the kingship of Jesus, we're reminded is when we're interacting with our friends and our coworkers, or maybe people in our neighborhood that don't know Jesus, if Jesus really is who the Bible claims that he is, he's not just king over me. He's not just king over you. Okay, he is the king over the universe. Paul says at the end of that passage, again, that one day every knee will bow, whether in, earth, in heaven or on earth or under the earth, Every tongue confess, every, all the people we're talking about, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So his majesty protects us from compromise. His humility can protect us from condescension. And, and what do we mean by that? Here's just an example. For some of us, and this, this is hard to admit, but for some of us, we are more tempted to model Jesus's kingship than his humility aren't we? And there are ways, if we're honest, we think like a king, we're better than other people. Maybe it's because we're Christian and, and they're not. Maybe we think uh, we know our Bibles better than other people do. 
We're more spiritually mature. We know our doctrine better than anyone else, as important as doctrine is. Or just one other possibility. Maybe we feel like it's unfair for us, especially living in what we feel as a free country, to experience any sort of persecution for believing what we do. And we don't think we should have to go through that. Now, again, if, if you relate to any of those, and, and I know I've, I've experienced those and felt those at different times in my life, is it possible that one of the attributes of Jesus that we are overlooking is his humility? His humility. Because again, think about this. What are those things at their core? Their pride, aren't they? A sense of superiority, a refusal to be shamed. And yet when you look at the one person that had the right to have a sense of superiority over to, to count equality with God, nothing to be grasped. If there was one person that could do this, it was Jesus himself. And he didn't do it, did he? He, 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 didn't, he didn't push away from the cross. He didn't avoid it. He allowed himself again to go through disgrace and dishonor and indignity in ways that none of us could ever imagine. Okay, if, if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, you're, you're called to live with that same sort of humility, with confidence and, and uncompromisingly, and at the same time to do what Jesus said in Luke 9, 23. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So if we're gonna follow Jesus as one of his disciples, I mean, the point here is we have to honor his majesty. We have to honor that, but we have to model his humility. That's the way that we're called to live as his disciples. Are there any ways in which when it comes to that challenge, that, that Christian condescension, that, that you might be guilty of it. I, again, I, there are different ways that I've experienced it. Maybe it's something to think about the rest of today. And no matter how you would answer that question, on this Palm Sunday, can we remember the breadth of our Lord and Savior and all of who he was? Let's, let's remember the sovereign servant, or as the way the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, verse two, the founder and perfecter of our faith, listen carefully, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand, at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray. God, we cannot imagine a leader like this. Lord, we are so grateful for him and for what he did for us. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to demonstrate these things in our own lives. Lord, recognizing his, um, his lordship, the, the need for absolute allegiance and commitment to him. And at the same time, his grace, his gentleness, and his humbleness. Lord, please, would you help us to model those as well, especially as we walk through a wait with a week with such gravity and weight as this one. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.